view of some of the elements that we covered last week, not so much to go over them in terms of their questions and to rehash the whole thing that we did last week, but basically to quickly review some of the points that we raised but, not did, but did not clarify. And then we will continue on and we will see that in the same way that Parshish Toldos flows into Parshish Vayetze, which didn't exactly flow last week, we'll see that Parshish Vayetze does flow into Parshish Vayishlach, and hopefully we will see that tonight. Nobody's going to bother us tonight. <coughs> we mentioned last week, we mentioned last week that Esav had a spiritual role in much the same way that Yaakov did. And the spiritual role that Esav had, we can sum up in two Hebrew words, Sur Meira, which means to identify spiritual danger and to muster up the spiritual courage and stamina to recognize those dangers and to try to stay as far away from them as possible. Bricha min hara, run away from a spiritual danger. This was the role that Esav had. And if he would have selected and assumed that role, he could have assumed the role of a father on equal basis, if not greater basis, than Jacob. This is something that we mentioned last week. For that role, for that particular role, he was given a unique quality. The quality we can call arma, cleverness. Cleverness, not tricky, but clever. In other words, where he was able to outsmart the different approaches that the Yetzirah, that the evil inclination, makes to a person. You're trying to outsmart me, I can do you one better. And that was a particular force that was given to Esav for his particular spiritual mission. Being that Esav did not assume his spiritual mission, and he rather selected to not take the danger signals, but to follow the danger signals, and go right head on into the dangerous areas. So what happened to his spiritual potential of cleverness is that it became a tool. Instead of identifying falseness and arriving at the truth, it became the opposite. It became a tool by which we take a situation which is false and we try to create a true situation out of it, where we make the appearance of being something that we are not. For instance, we are told that Esau had a very capable way of showing his father that he was a very big tzaddik. That was the cleverness that God had given him. But God had given him the cleverness in order to combat the evil and to outsmart the offenses of evil. While what he did is he took the cleverness and he switched it around. He went his own merry way and he used the cleverness to fool everybody else into thinking that he was a good person and that what he stood for was good values, meaningful values. So he became a human being who not only did not address his spiritual mission, but took the unique qualities that he had to address his spiritual mission, and he used them in an opposite way. And he becomes the Tzad Sayyid Bethiv. He becomes the one that knows how to talk quick, fast, cute, and trick people. That's Asaph. On the other hand, we explained that Esav assumed the role of Yaakov, Yaakov assumed the role of Esav, and it's therefore that we have displays of Jacob becoming a clever human being in his taking the birthright, in his taking the blessings. All of a sudden, he is assuming the role of the clever one, the one that can outsmart the situation. And the reason for this is obvious being that he took over the spiritual mission of, Je of Asaph, he also assumes the spiritual potentials of Asaph as well, and he becomes the arma. Ba'achicha ba'arma, your brother has come with cleverness and has taken the blessings from you. So this is what we said. The significance of this particular fact is that in a deeper sense, we have now defined basically the goal of any human being. The goal of the human being, and in particular our role in exile in Gullus, is to seek out the truth. No matter how clever 
And no matter how glittering the cultures and lifestyles around us are, seek out the truth. And we have a backup, we have a source to rely on for that, Yaakov. Yaakov took the armor, he took the cleverness, he assumed that mission, and because he assumed that mission and he strived for truth, we can also strive for truth. And it's our strive for truth that is ultimately the element that will make us survive against all our spiritual tests. Because if we look at everything through the glasses of truth, no matter what the test is, we either will identify it as a true value or a false value. If it's a false value, it loses its luring powers. Obviously, what we have to look for is to develop that sense of truth. If we can develop that sense of truth, all the spiritual tests that present themselves to the person become true and false situations, and obviously we will not select a situation that is clearly false in our eyes. This is basically what we said. It comes out, it comes out, it comes out that when we define our role in Gullus, what we are really doing is we are putting up two opposites. In other words, when we talk about two, two, let's say, two lifestyles coming into contradiction with each other, a lifestyle that lends itself to spiritual value and a lifestyle that does not lend itself to spiritual value, it's not just a subtitle of living, choice one, choice two, but in a certain sense they run in opposite ways of each other. One is emes, one is sheker. One is true, one is false. One is meaningful and one is cheap and meaningless. So they run in a sense as opposites. They run in a sense as opposites. And this concept of them running in, this, in, in a sense of opposites is communicated by a very interesting saying that the Gemara says. The Gemara says, in Yaimer Lecha Adam, if a person will tell you, you in the Kisri Banui, if a person will tell you that both Jerusalem and Rome are both built and they are both successful and flourishing, al tamin don't believe him. While on the other hand, im yaimalacha adam yurushalayim banui, the kisri charuv, but if somebody will tell you that Jerusalem is flourishing and Rome is in ruins, or the opposite, yurushalayim charuv, the kisri banui, or the opposite, that Jerusalem is in ruins or, and that Rome is flourishing, ta'aminlo, that you can believe. And the general idea, why is it such an axiom? Why is it such an axiom that it, for both to be flourishing is impossible? One flourishing and one in ruins is possible. It is because of the nature of the conflict that exists. One is emes, one is sheker. One is true, one is false. And if truth reigns, so then obviously false, falsehood doesn't have a place. If falsehood reigns, then truth doesn't have the place. But it's not as if we're buddies and neighbors and both can exist together. To the degree that there's truth, falseness lays in ruins. To the degree that falseness is flourishing, the truth is suffering. So that's the nature. That's a very clear picture that what we're talking about is lifestyles that have an underlying contradiction in them. And to the degree that we believe in one, we are automatically excluding ourselves to a certain degree from the other. We can't be jumping in both. So this is what we explain. Towards this, in this line, Yaakov leaves the house after he's pulled off his first and second clever stunt, and he's on his way to the house of Lavan who was a real wheeler dealer. On his way, he knows that the spiritual tests of that place are going to be tremendous, so he stops off for a prep course for 14 years in the yeshiva of shame. And there he knows that through the learning of Torah, he will develop a sensitivity towards true values, that when he comes in face with other cultures which are not true, he will have the strength and the knowledge to be, to be able to identify what's true and what's false. He knows that the Torah is the thing, the element, that will be able to develop that skill of identifying true 
and false. And he puts himself away on a crash course day and night for 14 years of learning, and then he's ready. He's ready to face the world. Okay, Yaakov leaves the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever, and he begins his travels to the house of Lavan. On the way, we mentioned that God made the sun come down two hours earlier so that Yaakov should sleep in a certain place, the place being Har HaMaria, the place being the place where Abraham prepared Isaac as a sacrifice and passed the, his last tenth spiritual test. There he sleeps, the eventual place that the holy temple will be built, and there he has, there he has a chalom, he has a dream. But it's not only a dream, it's an inyan nevui, it's a prophecy. Now, there's something that I would like to clear up that we went through last week, and we can get a deeper appreciation as we follow through the portions this evening of exactly what's happening. We mentioned the fact that Yaakov is the Isha Emes. He's the man that stands for truth. Truth is something that has to be developed. Not every superficial truth is really truth. This is something we spoke of two weeks ago. <coughs> to really get a sensitivity of true value, true direction, that's truth. To identify between different ways of living and what's meaningful to look for and what's not meaningful to look for. That goes into a deeper definition of truth, and that needs a lot of development. Ultimately, the development that Jacob gets through his different episodes lands up in the end to be the total development of truth. In other words, what we have to do now is examine different events in Jacob's life and try to trace his development of truth to its completion because he did reach a state of completion, and because he developed and reached the stage of completion, every human being can learn from that the mode of his own development of truth, and that he also has the capability of reaching that essential point of truth for himself and for what he does in his life. It is in that vein that we can try to appreciate the dream of Yaakov. We mentioned last week God made the sun come down two hours early. It had to be night. Yaakov had to go to sleep. And in his sleep, and in the form of a dream, he has his first nevuah. He has his first prophecy. We mentioned that God wanted to speak to Yaakov in privacy. Shut the lights. When everything is nice and quiet, I will talk to you. The two hours that the world lost on, sa on daylight savings time were compensated for after Yaakov's fight with the angel, which is in Parshas Vayishlach, which we are going to speak about tonight. But we asked, what was the concept of it becoming dark two hours early? What is the concept of God having to pay back those hours? It wasn't just that there was a farmer's lobby that came to God and said, we lost two hours and our crops are going to go down the drain. Obviously, there's something underneath. What is the two hours lost, the two hours gained? And God wants to speak to Yaakov in privacy. Well, to go along the line, the general idea that seems to be conveyed from the different commentaries is that there are different levels of prophecy. There's a level of prophecy where a person can be fully awake and he can interact with the divine pr presence in a wakeful state, and that divine presence interacts with him, he gets an image of certain characteristics, and he knows what God is going to do. For others that are not yet developed completely, they cannot have this interaction on a fully conscious level. On a fully conscious level, there are too many factors that are still active, physical factors that are still active, to make the interreaction a meaningful one. While when the person goes to sleep and he is basically oblivious of his physical, so in that kind of a state, a prophet could have a vision, even if he wasn't able to have it when he was awake. Now, it is definite 
that I'm not trying to lower Jacob, but for his initial prophecy, which was going to tell him certain basic concepts of truth, and is what was going to be another lesson in the development of truth, he was not yet equipped to learn that lesson awake. He had to go to sleep, where there was a cessation of certain physical qualities, and in that state, he would be able to see certain basic truths that God wanted to communicate to him that would aid in his further development of truth. When we talk about quiet, sinna as it's called in Hebrew, it is always something that is used when either the individual or the surroundings are not ready for it to be out in the open. That is what sinna is. Very often, quiet, quietly, in the dark, where nobody else is looking at something, is usually a situation that is required when the person is not worthy yet of it being splashed, or the people around him are not worthy of seeing what's going to happen. At this particular junction, the world was certainly not ready for this revelation of truth, and Yaakov was, but not in a wake state. So, God put the sun down. And putting the sun down meant that the truth were going to be revealed, but not in a wakeful state. It wasn't the supreme level of revelation yet. But God does promise that Jacob will develop to the point that those hours that have to be taken away to reveal truth can be returned and can shine upon him and heal him from his last battles to assume the truth. And we'll explain that as we proceed into Parshas Vayishlach. What was the dream? What was the dream? Let's explain, and as we go on, you'll see what I'm saying. What was the dream? In the dream, he saw the general of Bavo, the Babylonian general, going up and coming down, and the Persian generals going up and down, and the Greek up and down. And then he saw Edom, the, the descendants of Esau. Edom are the descendants of Esau, going up and up and up, and he could not just see how far they went. And he got scared. The very fact that Yaakov got scared is an indication that he had not yet developed completely that element of MS. Because Edom was a personification of Sheker, Edom was the personification of his Halak Zayda, his holy ancestor Asaph, who would be able to palm anything off on anybody with some quick talk. And Yaakov himself was so impressed by the strength of Adam, which is symbolized in his climbing up and up and up to the point that he could not see how far up he climbed. And Jacob got scared. The power of Shekhar, the power of falseness is so, so tremendous, I am scared that it will never be able to be conquered. Now, the fact that Yaakov had that fear is indicative of the fact that he had not yet reached the top level of MS. Because if he would have reached the top, top level of MS, so then he would know that Sheker can never come out. Falseness can never come out the winner at the end. The very fact that fear came into him was the fact that, gee whiz, this is something that's too strong to contend with and fear came to him. Now, God says to Jacob, Altira avdi Yaakov, Jacob, my servant, don't be scared. Even if he has the power with his clever tongue of rising into the heavens and sitting on par with me in people's eyes and minds, Misham ani mairidai, there will come a time when the spiritual revelation to the world will show that he's just a big fat phony. It's going to have to happen. Even if he's clever enough that people will believe in him in the same way that they believe in God, he has to come to an end. Don't be scared. Now, did Yaakov arrive at this understanding on his own? No. God told it to him in the Nebuah, in the prophecy. Had he yet developed in his own life the knowledge 
that no matter how strong falseness is, but in the end it loses, he didn't develop it. It was something that was being taught to him. It was a revelation that came to him in the form of a lesson being taught. And now, as he would prepare to go to Lovin's house, and he would prepare for the rest of his life, he would be working to realizing that lesson and seeing that lesson in action as, as his life proceeded. So he was given the format, he was given the curriculum. This is your curriculum. As strong as he's going to be, he's going to fall. And everything that happened in his life was exactly that. He went to Lovan. Lovan tried to outsmart him no less than 100 times. And God showed him that no matter how much you try to outsmart another person, the Emmis comes out on top. The Emmis will be successful in the end. And that's the entire episode of Lovan. The entire episode of Lovin is to communicate that idea. How smart he is, and as tricky as he is, and as clever he is, as he is, Emmis will come out on top if you remain Emmis, if you remain truthful. And we can't go through the other episodes at this particular point. We will, because all his tsars were this idea. He got it in a nevuah, he got it in a prophecy, and then his life was going to teach it to him, to the point that he would be believing it as an Emmis, as a full truth. Okay, then comes the crucial point. God tells Yaakov, Yaakov, I want you to go up on the ladder. And Yaakov says, I'm scared. So God says, what are you scared of? So Yaakov says, I'm afraid that the same way they went up and came down, I will go up and I will also come down. So what do I have to go up and come down? You know, it hurts when you go, the higher you are, the harder you fall. So what do I have to go up and come down for? I'd rather not go up. I'd rather not go up. So God told Yaakov, Al Tira, Avdi Yaakov, don't be scared. Imata if you will go up on the ladder, Misham you won't come down. Lo Hamin, Allah, he didn't believe it, did not go up. And because of it came the four Gullahs. We started to explain last week, when we were rudely interrupted, that Basically, the concept of going up on the ladder was a concept of success and fortune in this world. All those nations had, had worldly success. They went up, and their worldly success led to their downfall. All four of them. No matter how clever they were, their worldly success led to their demise. Yaakov was afraid that if he would be blessed with going up on the ladder, which meant that there would be worldly success, the worldly success would be something that he would not be able to contend with, would not be able to properly incorporate, and it would doom him to failure. In other words, Yaakov was scared that the, given the fortune and success that the others enjoyed, he would not be able to put it in its truthful perspective, and it would only act as a tool to destroy the spiritual level of the Jewish people. Because, of his, because he didn't feel that he would be able to cope with the blessing, he said, I'd rather not take it in the first place. Obviously, obviously, if Yaakov's characteristic of emes, of truth, would have been fully developed, and he would have had full trust that there is a way of living with total truth, he would not have been scared of all the fortune and blessing. Fortune and blessing is only a spiritual test for a person that has not yet acquired truth. But for a person that's acquired truth, the greatest blessings and the greatest pleasures of, these world, of this world can be transformed into tremendous spiritual energies. It was because he wasn't yet at the point of total grip on those elements of Emmis that he feared rising the ladder because he feared that he would not be able to take those elements in a truthful way. <coughs> so on one level we can say that he had not yet developed that MS. He did not yet believe that MS has within it the power of incorporating the greatest pleasures and the greatest blessings of this world and they can become just greater energies of, of spiritualism. And because of that he said, I'd rather not go up. Who needs to go up and to come down? I'd rather not go up. Obviously, there was a certain lack in his belief of the capabilities of truth, 
and the belief in the potentials of man reaching that truth. And because of that lack, God said, now you have to go the long way. You'll see all those blessings. And you'll see all the ways that they can schlep you away. They can take you away. And then you will define their proper role, the harder way, through Gullis. And you will make your way back. This is what we said up till 8.20 last week with some additional interpretations. Now, let's proceed further because this goes a little bit deeper and I want you to get an appreciation of who Jacob was. There is a very simple question that's asked and I had a tremendous amount of pleasure in finding the question. <clears throat> what did Jacob think? All the other fellows that went up on the ladder and were taken down the ladder, when they climbed the ladder of success, did he honestly think that they deserved it? At the point that they climbed the ladder of success, was it because they deserved it or because God had some kind of a plan why they should have temporary success? It's obvious, the commentaries say, that they did not deserve it. They were part of a certain plan by which they would temporarily have the possession of that success. But there wasn't anything that they earned. So the question that comes up is, so God is giving out something that you don't earn. If you don't earn it, so then the way it's given and the way it's taken away has nothing to do with deserving. If I got it without deserving, well, how do we determine when it's taken away? Obviously, it's only in God's plan. I'll give it to you when my plan sees it fit to give it to you, and I'll take it away when my plan sees fit to take it away. But it had nothing to do with deserving and not deserving. So then the question that comes up is, so God's giving something out. God's giving something out and has nothing to do with deserving. Now, if God can give something out without deserving, what was Jacob afraid of? What was he afraid of? He was afraid that he would go up and then he wouldn't be worthy and it would be taken away from him. But it wasn't given to him in the first place out of deserving, just like it wasn't given to anybody else. So if it's not being given out of deserving it, all right, so the basis of the having or not having is just God's decision. And if God said, go up and you'll never come down, what was he afraid of? This is a problem. All right? For those that it's, it's a bit complicated, we have a duplicator. All right? This is a problem. All right? This is a problem. And the answer that's given is very interesting. The answer that's given is as follows. <coughs> There's a little story in the Gemara in Ksubis. In the Talmud in Ksubis, there's a story after the destruction of the temple that, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, how do you like that? That Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai saw a lady going in the streets of Jerusalem among the ruins, and she was collecting grains of barley from between the entrails of animals. The poorness of Jerusalem after the destruction was so astounding that the way that people looked for their food was in such a fashion. It's as har it was horrifying. Rabbi Yechonim ben Zakai Ra Riba Achas, he saw this woman. This woman was Bitai Shalnakdimian ben Gurion. She was the daughter of one of the wealthiest Jewish families of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Yechonim ben Zakkai took his hands to his head and said, Ashrechem Yisrael, praise be the Jewish people. Why? When they do the will of God, they rise to the heavens. And when they don't do the will of God, they go down to the ground. They go and they collect their food in the entrails of animals. This was Rabbi Yechonin ben Zakkai's statement. We would have reacted to the particular event in a horrifying fashion. Rabbi Yechonin ben Zakkai saw the greatness of the Jewish people in this particular episode. Ashrechem Yisrael, praise be the Jewish people. 
that when they go up, they go up to the skies, and when they come down, boy, do they go. This was a big, big to-do. And obviously the question is, what is the big ashrechen? The praise that when they rise, they rise to the heavens, that's understandable. But when they fall, that they should have to fall to nothingness, there's no particular praise that a person can logically understand in that. <coughs> so the Maralmi Prague gives a very insightful answer to this. And the Maralmi Prague says the following thing. What is the element that makes the Jew tick? What makes him tick? It is because the essence of the Jew and what makes him tick is his closeness to God and his spiritual values. It is that, that is the reason that when he rises, he rises to the heavens. Because that's it, what's inside of him. And when he's successful and he does the will of God, what makes a Jew tick, ticks loud and strong. But when he doesn't do Ritzono Shalmakam, when he doesn't do the will of Hashem, so he's not identifying with his essence. He's not identifying with the part that's within him that makes him tick. The clock has stopped. And that's why the phenomena of the Jew is a nothing. When he's ain't Eisiritzano Shalmakam, he... If the plant won't be watered once a day, the plant will die. So you go home and you say to yourself, listen, I know that there's such, a, there's such a thing as a cactus plant. And a cactus plant is very, very green. And it only has to be watered once. Once a week, once in two weeks. I insist I will only plant the, water this plant once in two weeks. And I expect of it to be as green as a cactus plant. Well, he'll be back by the gardener in a couple of days buying a new plant. What's the answer? You have to identify what is the nourishment of the plant. So you'll say, well, there's another plant whose nourishment is less and is just as green, so I can expect of this plant the same. We know it's not so. And it's the same kind of an idea over here. When they look for the nourishment that they need, the nourishment can make them soar into the heavens. But when they don't get the nourishment, there isn't some sub-level of existence. That's the nourishment that they need. If they get the nourishment, fine. If they don't get the nourishment, they become nothing. It's like the plant that withers because you haven't given it its nourishment that particular day. So what Rav Yechen and Ben Zakei saw in that particular story was something very beautiful. Rav Yechen and Ben Zakei saw that there is no middle ground where the Jew can just live on, he can exist, and he doesn't look, you know, he can just plow along and exist. No. He identifies with his essence, he rises. He doesn't identify with his essence, he doesn't have existence. And that, while it's a hard pill to swallow for the time that we're not identifying with it, but it does signify something very beautiful that's inside. This is what I need. With less than this, I can't live. And that's what that story communicated. Ashrechem Yisra. So, one of the commentaries explains in the same way, in the same way that this was what Jacob was concerned with. Jacob said the following thing. I'm going to climb the ladder. I'm given an offer to climb the ladder. What does it mean to climb the ladder? What does it mean to climb the ladder? That means that God is going to give me a physical and natural existence. Just like everybody else had a physical and natural existence, I will also have a physical existence. Which means that even in the event that I don't live up to the total communication that's expected of me, I can come by. I can still exist in a natural way. Yaakov, being that he wanted to develop the characteristic of truth, said, I don't need this nonsense. I want the kind of living that if I'm living truthfully, my life will have meaning. And if I'm not living truthfully, I should feel the whole emptiness of my life. I don't need a life where I can go roam for 15, 20 years and exist and not be disturbed about it. I'd rather have a life that if I don't identify with the truth, I should feel a total emptiness. I should feel that I'm, uh, that I'm licking the ground. I prefer that. I don't need anything in the middle. That's a tremendous level. 
It's a level that came from his quality of MS. He didn't want to go on the ladder. God had reasons why he was. He wanted him to go on the ladder, which is a discussion which we're not going to go into at this point. God wanted that he should go on the ladder. The only mistake that Jacob made in this particular question of going on the ladder, not going on the ladder, was that he shouldn't have been smarter than God. God told him to go on the ladder. Who are you to be smarter? So that was a mistake on his part. But other than that particular mistake of why be smarter, the general feeling of Yaakov, that I don't want to be able to live in existence where I'll feel comfortable just with a quasi kind of living. I want to feel very uncomfortable. I want to feel like I'm licking the ground if I don't identify completely. That was something that came out of his quest for truth. He is developing in his prophecy. He's developing as the prophecy goes along. Not sufficiently that his children will not have to go into exile, but he's a developing man of Emmaus. He wakes up the next morning and the twelve stones or the two stones that he put there the night before all of a sudden are one. Why are they one? The answer is simple. Because when a person identifies with the Mida of Emmaus, when he identifies with that characteristic of truth, every part of creation harmonizes with him because he is in harmony with the purpose for which everything was created. Because he sees everything in its truthful perspective and only wants to use it in its right way, the entire creation comes to him and wants to serve him because he is using it in the right and vital way. In other words, because he was the Isha Emes, and he would take out of creation exactly what would be needed to be incorporated in a service of God, there wasn't a thing in creation that didn't rush to have that incorporation accomplished through Yaakov. The stones argue, I want to be the pillow for Jacob's head. I want to be the pillow for Jacob's head. The entire creation harmonizes itself with Jacob because Jacob has harmonized his life with creation. From it, he learns, from it he learns that he has developed enough truth that he will be able to have 12 children that won't fight. Fighting comes when there is no sense of truth. But when there's a sense of truth in every person's pursuit of spiritual goals, there's no fighting. Fighting only comes among brothers when there is a lack of truth. When Yaakov saw that creation is in harmony with him, he knew that he had enough truth in him that he would be a guiding father to his children, that even though they were 12 diametrically opposed spiritual forces, all completely different kinds of forces, but there is the element of truth that will unify them. He knew that Abraham had a child that was not good. Isaac had a child that was not good because they both were fathers that took a characteristic to an extreme. He knew that he had acquired enough of the level of MS that his children would not fall to the side because of an extreme characteristic. <clears throat> I'd like to give one example of this element of truth, and then we'll continue on this development of the truth in Parshas Vayishlach. We know that after the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of the temple, there were tzaddikim, there were righteous people that went to wake up our forefathers to plead our case in heaven that we should come out of Gullus. And God and the tzaddikim went to the burial place of Abraham and asked the neshama, the soul of Abraham, to come in front of the of HaKadosh Baruch in front of God and plead our case. Abraham comes in front of God and pleads the case. He said, I led such a life with spiritual mission. I changed over the world. I gave some, some sense of value to the world. Take my children out of exile. And God did not agree. Then Yitzchak's soul was awakened and came in front of the Kisiyakov. It came in front of the Holy Throne and said, I was the person that was prepared to give my life at age 37 to do your will take my children out of Gullus, out of exile. And God did not agree. Then Yaakov came and said, I was the person that built a family of 12 tzaddikim that were the pillars and the foundations of the entire Jewish nation. 
take my children out of Golis. And God did not agree. Then the tzaddikim went to the soul of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moses, can't get better. And Moshe Rabbeinu went in front of the Kisei HaKovid, went in front of the Holy Throne and said, I took your children out of Egypt. I took your children out of Egypt. And I learnt with them 40 years in the desert. And I gave them the Torah. Take my children out of Golis. And God did not agree. And then, almost as an afterthought, they went to Rachel Imenu. They went to Rachel, the mother. And they said, and they woke up her soul, and her soul went in front of the Kisei HaKavayt and said the following thing. I was supposed to marry Yaakov. And on the night of the wedding, my wheeling, dealing father arranged it that Leah should marry Yaakov. And I knew that this was going to happen, and we made up a signal system so that in no way could Lovin get his way. And I saw Leah going into the marriage, and I knew that she would be embarrassed and cursed forever. And I could not tolerate that. And I gave her all the signals. I gave her all the signs. Not only did I do that, but I was there when the signals were asked for, and instead of Leah answering to the signals, I answered so that Yaakov shouldn't be able to tell a difference in voice. And Rachel said, I'm a woman. And Yaakov was the person that I was supposed to marry. And I was ready to give all that up so that Leah shouldn't be embarrassed because it meant so much to Leah to be where she was. HaKadosh Baruch Hu heard this and HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, Rachel, don't cry anymore. For what you have done, the children, your children will come out of Golis. And the Maral says, this is a very nice story, but why does Rachel's prayer stand greater than Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's, Moses' prayer? Why? So the Maral says one thing. The Maral says that Rachel was in full control, was in full control of all her normal emotions, in full control and she was willing to give up for the sake of another, spirit, another person's spiritual gain. She was willing to give up. She was very pure and emes. She took all the personal elements out of it, and she was willing to give up. The Maral says that's what will take us out of Gullis. When we will be able to take all our personal needs and desires out of our spiritual pursuits, then we will be able to live in a way of making room for others. There'll be shalom, and when there'll be shalom, we'll come out of Gullis. Rachel proved that there was that element. Okay, now let's continue on into Parashas Vayishlach. Yaakov <coughs> comes, Yaakov comes to the house, Yaakov comes to the house of Lovin, is there, lives there for 20 years, passes the spiritual tests, and is on his way back home. But on his way back home, he knows, he gets messages that Esav is out for his head. So he sends messengers, messengers, he sends angels. That's the level that Jacob is at. He sends angels, the angels that he created by his mitzvahs. To warn Esav, you think you got angels, you got demons. I got the same. I got angels that I created. And he went through an entire preparation for war. Appease the enemy, pray to God, and get ready for war. All three elements. And the present is sent, and he decides to divide the camp, even if Asaph will come to one camp, the other camp will fight back and survive, and we're ready for the confrontation. By the way, there is much that's learned from the way he approached the situation to the way we have to approach our situation in Gullis. But this is not for this particular moment. But every single thing that he did in the eventual confrontation with his enemy Asaph at this point is something that we have to learn to use today. But we'll leave that for now. He takes everybody over to the other side of Yabok, a body of water, and he's left alone. And there, being left alone, the angel of Asaph, the spiritual angel of Asaph comes and locks himself in combat with Yaakov. 
Now, there are many things that we have to understand about that particular combat. That was a fight that ensued the entire evening till daybreak. And it was a draw. The angel of Asav, the spiritual forces that it, he personified, were not able to conquer Yaakov. No matter what they did, they weren't able to conquer Yaakov. <coughs> So, every time he tried to give a knock at Yaakov or try to hit him, right? let's imagine that it's the sports page and it's being reviewed. Every time he tried to give him a left hook, he looked up and he saw God standing over Yaakov and he took, turned back from his swing. And this is the way it proceeded all night. Before morning, he saw that he couldn't do anything, so he tried to give him a kick in in his, you know, in his thigh, the Gid Hanasha, he was able to weaken him in the Gid Hanasha, but not able to topple him and conquer him. And daybreak came. When daybreak came, when daybreak came, the angel said, "You have won. Let me go and sing the praise of God." What in the world is going on here? We are told, the Yanis and Benaziel tells us that this angel never prayed to God. Every angel in some time in its existence says the praise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The angel coincidentally had an appointment with God that morning to sing the praise of God. And he said to Yaakov, I can't be late. You're holding on tight. I can't go where I have to go. Please let me go. I have to go sing the praise of, of God. So Yaakov knew this stunt. And Yaakov said... Uh, yeah, yeah, you're telling me all this orthodox stuff, but before you go, I want you to agree to the blessings that I outsmarted for my brother Asaph. So the angel said, I'll definitely agree. That beer hug is pretty tough. It's getting harder and harder to bear. I will definitely agree with you. I'll come and I'll say that it's true, but not here. I'll come back. When you reach Beth El, where God will change your name from Jacob to Israel because you conquered an angel, there I will come and I will agree with you. Yaakov said, forget the postponements. I want it now. So, the angel says, well, i got to go sing. We have no time to argue. Yaakov said, okay, we have no time to argue. Agree now. And it says in the Medrashim that the Malach started to cry. The angel began to cry. We don't know what that means. But... It was at that crucial point when Yaakov didn't give in to the crocodile tears of that angel of Esav that Esav said, Amen al-Habrachas. And then Yaakov said one last thing. Just before you leave, can you please tell me your name? And he said, well, what do you want to know my name for? Tell me your name. I have no name. Goodbye, good luck, zaygebenched, and let me go. That's the episode in the Chumash. Now, <laughs> normally, under normal circumstances, we make an effort to give some literal translation to the Chumash. When it comes to this particular portion, we are forced to admit that the Torah talks in another language and that everything that is so literal and physical in the Torah might, might have some deeper interpretations because there's no way of understanding this. What is it here? Let's make up our mind. Is it a physical fight or a spiritual fight? If it's a physical fight, the question that comes up is other than the, the uh, publicity and the amount of papers that will be sold the next day for the sports section, what is the significance of a physical fight? If it's not a physical fight and it's only a spiritual fight, well, what does it mean that they were knocking around all day, all evening, and that they kicked up the dust till the holy throne, and that he hit him in the gid Like, let's make up our mind. Is it a physical fight, a spiritual fight? If it's a physical fight, what's the significance? If it's a spiritual fight, well, what, what is the Chumash talking about here? What's the singing of the angel? He's all of a sudden, he's got to sing. Yaakov's got to get the, the blessing down pat. You, are not, you can cry from today till tomorrow, but I'm not letting you go until until you agree that what I did was all right. What's happening here? <coughs> What's happening in this particular episode is that after Yaakov has taken care of his spiritual test by Lavan, 
he now has to come face to face with Asaph. And he has to be able to prove that he has acquired the Mida of Emes, that he has acquired the trait of Emes, of truth, to the degree that his taking the blessings was a warranted and truthful act. He has now developed to the point that he is contending with the last remaining residues of falseness, and he has to get rid of the last points. And it was when you reach that point, very close to completion, that the biggest resistance sometimes comes up, because he wants to spoil it in the last moment. You reach, you reach, you reach, you're one page before the end of, of accomplishing, completing an entire text, and he's there to make sure that you never finish it. There is such an element that when the person is going up, ah, he's got a ways, I'll take care of him before he gets to the end. Yaakov was reaching the end. And when he was reaching the end, the opposite force put in as much as he could to try to ruin it. This is what's meant when we say that they kicked the dust to the Holy Throne. What it meant was that he was trying to tear away Yaakov's last remaining blocks of being completely in complete direction and looking straight at God in everything that he did in his life. Asaph wanted to kick enough dust into ja Yaakov's head that he shouldn't be able to see it clearly. You're looking, you, you got it pretty clear, there are no more camouflages, but I'm just going to kick enough dust that, that you won't be able to see it clearly. So it is a spiritual test. But the spiritual test also came in the form of a physical test. And the reason why it came in the form of a physical test is to teach us that our physical trials and tribulations of life are directly related to our spiritual trials and tribulations. They are not two separate issues. If the Jew suffers in physical ways and he is threatened in physical ways, it is because there's a spiritual battle that's going on as well. So it was a spiritual battle that was going on between Yaakov and Asaph. Would Yaakov be able to conquer the last stretch of mountain? It was a spiritual test. But God put it into a form of a physical physical fight because they are related. The two worlds are related. And when we walk away, we know it's a spiritual test, and to the degree that we're spiritually strong, we will be physically strong as well. They run hand in hand. They're not separate issues. They run together. What happened? Yaakov faced it, was strong, he was able to conquer an angel. Why? Because with Emes you can conquer anything. If you have that element of truth and you know that what you're doing is true and that it has meaning, that is the strongest force that a person can have. It's a stronger force than any other spiritual force. Malachim can fight with you and you're stronger than them because you're looking straight at the Kisei HaKavad. You're living a life that attaches you to the Kisei HaKavad. And when you have that feeling of truth and striving for truth, that's a power that's stronger than Malachim. Stronger than Malachim. And when he accomplished it, and the, he, ne, he did not fall in that last spiritual test, Yaakov said, you've got to agree that when I took the blessings, I took them in truth. Because now I will have the blessings and I will not misuse them. And if I will not misuse them, I took them in truth. And Asaph's not willing to give up. Asaph, no, 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 no. I'll agree to you at Bethel. How long will it take to get to Bethel? Maybe one day. But maybe I'll still try to kick up some dust. Maybe I'll still make a last-ditch effort after you let go of me and take me out of this beer hug. I'll come back tomorrow when you're not looking and I'll try to do you in. And Yaakov said nothing doing. I've come to the point that I feel so strong in the truth that I'm not going to let you go until you say Amen, until you say that what I did was right. And he blessed him. Now, at this point, something very interesting happened. When he reached this level of Emes, Yaakov looked back at the rest of his life and said that all the different false things that appeared for him now became his building blocks. 
Now he looks back at them and says, before they were stumbling blocks and they confused me and I had trouble with them and I never knew if I could conquer them. But now that I've conquered them, I've learned to appreciate them because I've, I've developed from them. I've taken those forces, understood them, put my foot down to say what I will follow, what I won't, and I've become stronger for everything that I fought for. He asks the angel, what is your essence? What is your essence? What's your strength? Who are you? Is evil a real existence? What, what are you all about? You're so strong. So I vanquished you, but who are you? I'd like to get to know you. Who are you? And the Malach said, I'm nothing. I'm imagination. I'm illusion. I'm there just to deflex your muscles. And you flexed your muscles plenty. And because of that, the angel said, it was this, this is the first time that I accomplished my mission. My mission is to make people flex their muscles. Yaakov, you're the first person that have used me in the way that I was intended to be used. I have now the position of singing the praise of God because I, in the evil that I am, have finally accomplished the person's purpose that I was created for. I have to go and sing the praise of God because my purpose has been fulfilled in you. This is the episode. After it, whatever it means that he was hit in the thigh, whatever that's supposed to mean, we can talk about that in the future. He left the battle limping a little bit. But he had acquired truth. The two hours that he didn't have before to see all the elements of truth in wakeful state now came back to heal him. The hours that he couldn't see clearly before, now he could see. The Shemesh came back. The sun came back to heal the last remaining imprints of the battle that he had before. So if you go through this, you see that what's happening through the entire area is Yaakov has his mission, Esav has his. Esav doesn't assume his mission, Yaakov takes it over. Yaakov takes it over and he has to develop this MS. He develops it, then he has a prophecy of further development. He develops from the prophecy itself. Then he goes to Lovin's house. In Lovin's house, he develops it further, and then he makes the final confrontation, acquires it, and the portion is over. He has reached that emes. He has reached that element of emes. I'd like to just pose an interesting last point, and then we're finished. And it comes from the Zohar. One thing is Kabbalistically oriented, it's very beautiful, and one thing is a very good piece of advice. We are told in Parashas Vayetz is something very beautiful. Jacob goes out to the field, he sees all the shepherds coming in with their flocks of sheep in broad daylight, and he asks them, It's not time yet to bring in the sheep. Why are you all here? Lechu uru v'hashku es Go out, go out, and give your sheep to drink, and let them pasture in the fields. Passage, right? Yaakov reveals the be'er, he takes off the stone, returns it, and says, go, it's not yet time to bring in the sheep. And Kabbalistically, the Zohar says that Yaakov was talking about our Gullus. And he said that sown the sheep are the Jewish people. And he said, unfortunately, it's not yet time for the sheep to return. It's not yet time. Go, give them to drink and to pasture. What does that mean? So Reb Chaim says, very interestingly, Reb Chaim says that what does Hashku Hatzayin mean? Go drink, give the sheep to drink and to pasture. So he says that there is a pasuk. There is a pasuk that says, Ashrechem kol zayre al kol mayim, meshalchei regel hashar v'hachamur. Praised are you. 
that send your efforts upon the water. So the Gemara says, what is that supposed to mean? Praised are the Jewish people because when they are busy with Torah and with Gemilas Chasadim, they are in full control of all the inclinations that pull them away. Now, what does that have to do with the verse? So the Gemara goes on to say that Mayim is Torah. And Reues Hatzon is a reference to Gemilas Chasadim. There are proofs with passages. We won't go through it. So what the passage is basically saying is that when the Jew is, busies himself with Torah and with Gemilas Chasadim, then he can be in control that he's not fooled by his Yetzer. So, returning to the earlier verse, Yaakov moaned, and Yaakov said, Lo We haven't yet conquered those forces. It's not time for us to return. We haven't vanquished the forces of falseness yet. What should we do to survive it? What should we do to finally conquer them? Hashku or U.S. Hatsain. Feed the sheep. Give them to drink. Give them Torah. And teach them to do Gemilas Chasadim. With Torah and Gemilas Chasadim, a person can reach closer and closer to the point of truth, to the point of Hayase Pamikna, that it will be time for the sheep to return to their proper place. Okay, we'll stop here.